Well, good morning. Ladies, do you remember that one classmate that knew everything? You know, the one that carried around that big scientific calculator on that big pile of books. Well, I remember this little nerdy guy. His name was Johnny the Genius. He was smart at everything, and he got straight A's in math, science, languages, geography, history. He knew it all, a brain in every subject. He tried out for all the competitions, and yes, he won them all. And his hand was always the first one up, and his answers were always right. He ended up getting 100% on every test, and that just made the rest of us look, well, not so smart. Well, if we only had then what we have now, we would have been just as knowledgeable as Johnny the Genius. Google. <laughs> yes, you laugh, but Google. All we have to do is ask Google a question, and Google gives us the answers. Today, knowledge is at our fingertips. We don't need to know anything anymore. All we need to know is where our phone is or where our computer is and ask away. I tried. I said, hey Google, where's the deepest part of the ocean? It's nearly seven miles beyond, below the surface in the Mariana Trench near Guam. Hey Google, when was Sir John A. Macdonald the Prime Minister of Canada? from October 17, 1878 to June 6, 1891. Hey Google, what's 3,567,000 times 789? 2,814,363,000. If only we had Google back then, I could have shown Johnny the genius that he wasn't the only one that knew it all. The only trouble with Google is that it doesn't really know me. I tried. I said, hey Google, when was I born? I don't know when it is. Hey Google, what am I thinking about right now? I'm on it. Hmm, something went wrong, please try again. Those are the exact words of Google, okay? So much for a world of knowledge, but imagine knowing somebody who knows everything about you. Now imagine knowing somebody who knows everything about you, everything, and loves you anyways. Someone who knows you when you were born, actually someone who knew you before you were even born. Someone who knows what you're thinking right now, what you're going to say, and what, what's going on deep down in your heart. Someone who has all knowledge. King David wrote a psalm about this someone a psalm about God and his attributes, about the depth of God's knowledge, about the depth of God's knowledge of David and of you and me, a God that fully knows you and me, a God that fully loves you and me. And before we look into this psalm, which is Psalm 139, let's just come before him in prayer one more time. <clears throat> Lord, we ask that you be with us now as we look into this psalm. We pray that you help us as we study this chapter together, bringing us into a deeper understanding of who you are and your love for us. Give us open hearts and minds, and may your truth be heard, Lord. And we thank you for this opportunity to study and grow together, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
So to begin, let's just look at the structure of this psalm. Psalm 139 divides nicely into four stanzas. The six ver- there's six verses in each one, verses 1 to 6, and then there's 7 to 12, 13 to 18, and 19 to 24. Each of these stanzas communicates one essential attribute about God. And we're going to walk through this psalm. We'll go stanza by stanza, discovering what David has come to know about his God. So let's first look at um, the first stanza, verses 1 to 6, where David comes to know the fullness of God's knowledge. His, the, the fullness of God's knowledge is um, omniscience. So Psalm 139. O Lord, this is um, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God knows everything about David. You have searched me and known me. Pagans often thought that their gods were hostile, uncaring, unsympathetic. Yet David knew that the true God made a deliberate effort to have searched him and known him a God that knows everything about him, when he's sitting down, when he rises up, and everything in between. A God that knows David on his path, when he's awake, walking, and when he rests, and everything in between. He knows all his thoughts, everything that's going on in his head, and everything he is going to say before he says it. A God who is able to see all there is about him, and a God who is able to see all there is about us. He knows everything about us, when we're sitting, when we're rising, and everything in between, when we're awake and when we're resting, when we're shopping, when we're watching TV, when we're driving, when we're surfing the net. He knows our weaknesses, how we think, and how we react. He knows what's in our heart, and the words that we want to say are the words that will actually come out of our mouths that we might end up regretting. In Matthew 10.30, we're even told that even the hairs of our head are all numbered. He knows the smallest things about us, our deep inner thoughts, the actions we will take, and the words we will speak. Do you find that you've been married for so long that you know each other so well and you finish each other's sentences? I hear a few mm <laughs> Rick and I have been married for 37 years now, and we know each other quite well. If you ask me, I can tell you my husband's strengths and his weaknesses. I know what discourages him. I know what brings him joy. I know that when we go to Baskin Robbins, even though there's 31 amazing flavors to choose from, he will always choose pralines and cream. And he knows that I will always choose something as long as the main ingredient is chocolate. And as much as we can say that we know each other so well, God knows us even better. God knows each one of us more and better than we know ourselves. Even more, um, more every, sorry, every move we make, every thought we ponder, every word we speak, nothing is hidden. This could be a frightening thought. 
Should this not affect the way we think and what we say? The fact that God knows all there is to know about you, does this make you nervous and uneasy? Like when you walk into the bank and use the ATM machine and there's this hidden video camera. Well, it's not really hidden, but you know it's there and you're not planning to commit a crime, but the fact that someone's watching you kind of makes you feel uneasy. Or is it comforting to know that God knows everything about us because not only does he know all these things, but he cares about us and he loves us. Should we not feel confident knowing this? Knowing that we could have a relationship with a living God who knows us thoroughly? David goes on in verses 5 and 6 to express his confidence in such a God. He says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You hem me in. You surround me. This is commonly referred to the siege of a city as troops would press in during war. The troops would hem in or surround. There was no way of escape. God is on every side of us. He surrounds us like an army. He is behind us, before us, protecting us. There's no way to escape. And while he surrounds us, he lays his hand upon us, not to trap us, but to reassure and guide us. It's an expression of his love and care as we're wrapped in his protective care, his gentle touch of grace. But this is beyond David's understanding. It blows his mind as to how awesome and wonderful God is that he would know and care about every detail in his life. It's like the study of Genesis that we've been doing on Sundays with James. Creation, how in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Is this not beyond our understanding how God is an infinite God, in the beginning, God? How he created light by just speaking, Let there be light. And the waters and the plants and the animals and then the humans um, in his image from dust he formed man and then breathed life into him all in six days and then he rested this is something too vast for us to comprehend and likewise david too was overwhelmed by the fullness of god's knowledge it was just beyond his understanding he said it's too wonderful meaning it's extraordinary or just too hard to grasp how you know me so well. And then in the next stanza, verses 7 to 12, David comes to know the fullness of God's presence, his omnipresence. Let's read together verses 7 to 12. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. David finds it comforting, not threatening, but comforting to know that God fills every corner of the universe, from the heavens to the grave, from the morning light as the sun rises to the uttermost parts of the west. There's no place he can go. God is always there. John Mason wrote this. 
The presence of God's glory is in heaven. The presence of his power on earth. The presence of his justice in hell. And the presence of his grace with his people. If he deny us his powerful presence, we fall into nothing. If he deny us his gracious presence, we fall into sin. If he deny us his merciful presence, we fall into hell. God is everywhere. He is fully present with you and me. He is there to lead, guide, and direct us in his ways, upholding us and keeping us safe in full communion and fellowship with him. We can be assured, as David was, of the constant presence of God's hand of love and care for us. Neither height nor depth, things from the east right to the west, nothing, not even death, as Romans 8, 38 and 39 tell us, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what about the darkness? Is God in the darkness? Because the darkness sure can be frightening. When I was growing up, we lived in Quebec, and on most weekends, we would go to the cottage in the Laurentians. It was a small, rustic cabin in the woods with no heat, no electricity, no running water. During the day, I remember loving to hike in the forest and picking wild mushrooms and blueberries, helping my dad chop the wood for the, the camp stove and, and the campfire, and playing games and swimming in the nearby lake. Come evening, I couldn't do nothing but be afraid. It was pitch black, as black as black could be. No electricity meant no light, night lights, no street lights, no city lights, just blackness. It was like everything was hidden from me, my family, my dog, even me. I would put my hand in front of my face, but I couldn't see a thing. That's how dark it was. And then I tried so hard to fall asleep. The owls started hooting and strange animals started making these crunching sounds outside my window. I really wanted to crawl into bed with one of my sisters, but I was just too afraid to get out of my bed because I'd probably end up smashing into a wall. So I would just pull up the covers um, close to me. And then the worst feeling came upon me. I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and so that meant a trip outside to the outhouse where all those crunching noises were coming from. I can't express what a joy it was in the morning when the morning broke and I could see again. God's presence with David was like a constant light in the darkness. No matter how pitch black it is, there's no hiding place. It's impossible to get away. We can't hide from the presence of God. Whether in the light or in the dark, both are alike because they are controlled by him. In John 1, 5, it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He, Christ, is the light of the world. We have the light with us, whose presence casts out all darkness. Knowing this, how should that impact how we live? Do we live fearful lives? Agitated as we go to work to have to deal with that difficult coworker? Stressed as we juggle our schedules, trying to manage our home while homeschooling our kids? Anxious about your failing health or the health of a loved one? Or are we fearless because we know that we have nothing to be afraid of because we're not alone? The omnipresence of God reminds us that he is everywhere we go and that we are sheltered in his protective, 
loving hand. So we can say that not only does God know me because he is um, omniscient, not only is God with me because he is omnipresent, but God made me because he is omnipotent. He's the all-powerful one that he can do anything. And that brings us now to the third stanza, verses 13 to 18. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. David is in full awe and praise of the all-powerful one who made him. He recognizes the miracle of his conception and the wonderful way he was knitted together in his mother's womb. If you think about it, David didn't have access to what we know now with ultrasounds and all, but he saw what he saw was enough for him to admire the handiwork of God, to be fearfully and wonderfully made. What a mystery of creation. From the time of conception, as we began to grow and develop in our mother's womb, there was God, present with us right from the beginning, forming us. To think that at five weeks, the baby's size of an orange seed and the tiny heart will start to beat. One week later, the baby's nose, mouth, and ears are starting to take shape. The intestines and brain are beginning to develop, and the baby has now grown to the size of a sweet pea. At 11 weeks, the baby's almost fully formed, kicking, stretching, hiccuping, and is the size of a large strawberry. Weeks go by, the organs are forming, the lungs are strengthening. To think about the design of the human body and how it is made makes us marvel at how, God, our, how great our God is. I went to Google. Yes, I went to Google and researched the human body. I found a website that basically just named off all the systems and parts of the human body. I was able to then just click on each one and it explained amazing facts and functions of each one. The circulatory system, the digestive system, the immune system, the muscular and nervous systems, respiratory skeletal systems, and more. The parts of the human body, the brain, lungs, liver, kidneys, heart, colon, pancreas, bladder, intestine, spleen, stomach. I can go on. The design of the human body, the complexity of it all, so skillfully made. Designed and created by God. We are part of his plan and he has given us life created perfectly. We're not perfect, but he create, what he creates is perfect because we are created in his image. Each one of us so unique and different from each other. But do you ever wish you were like someone else? If only I was taller, if only I was shorter, skinnier, prettier. Why can't I be as smart or as intelligent as that other person? Why did my parents have me so late in life? Was I a mistake? Why did my mother, who carried me for nine months, give me up for adoption? Was I not wanted? No, you have been knit together, a unique, one-of-a-kind person, woven by a God, a God who has created you with great care and affection. 
We are to live thankful lives knowing that we have a purpose and a meaning in life. By God's grace, when we are made alive, sorry, by God's grace, when we are made alive in Christ, we read in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God calls us his workmanship. He has skillfully crafted us for a purpose, for his purpose. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, to serve him in this world, each one uniquely loved by our maker. So as David began Psalm 139, he thinks about how God knows everything about him, then about how God is with him everywhere he goes, and how God is, all how God is the all-powerful one who has created him. Now as we look at the last stanza, it's like the tune of his song is just way off and there's this major key change. Verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked. What? That, that seems so different than any, um, the, the, what he was singing about before in, at the beginning of the song. So let's look at verses 19 to 24. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. In the first three stanzas, David was reflecting on God's knowledge, on his presence, and on how all-powerful all he is. As David reflects on all these attributes of God, he has come to know God's holiness. And as he comes to know God's holiness, David's love for God becomes so great, and his hatred for evil becomes front and center. He wants nothing to do with his enemies because they hate God. It's not that they are his enemies, nor that they are out to get him. No, it's because they are enemies of God. They are wicked, murderers. They take the name of the Lord in vain. It's ugly sin, and David couldn't stand it. David's heart grieved at what they did and how they felt toward his God, their maker. In a commentary, I found this summary about the last stanza. The feelings of the psalmist in relation to the acts of the wicked is a proof that he loved God. These reflections seem to have sprung from his contemplation of the divine character and perfections as leading him to hate all that was opposed to a being so pure, so benevolent, so holy. On looking into his own heart in view of what God was, he was conscious that he had no sympathy with the enemies of God as such, that such was his love for the character of God and such his confidence in him that he could have nothing in common with them in their feelings toward God, but wished to be disassociated from them forever. God changed David powerfully. As we seek and follow him, we too should have changed hearts. Do we hate sin with such a passion? Do we hate to see how the world rejects God? Does it not break our hearts to witness people that want nothing to do with a loving, caring, and holy God, but instead look to, the, to all the worldly pleasures, idols, riches, self-righteousness? 
Do we imitate David in that to love God is to hate evil? A complete hatred of sin, even sin in our own lives? We see in verse 23, David goes back to asking God to search him, to know and examine his heart, to try him and to know his thoughts. In verse 1, David knew that God had searched his heart already, that God knew everything about him. But his troubled heart wants God to keep searching so that if God found anything that needed to be changed, any sin in his heart, any wrong thoughts, any wrong motives that he just spoke about, that God would help change him. If there were um, any unknown sins, David wanted them to be revealed and dealt with. David recognizes sin and how it separates him from God. He doesn't want anything to stand in the way of his relationship with God. He wanted to search him and to re he wanted God to search him and to reveal his sin to him so that he could be then repent and have a right relationship with God. Sin in our life causes us to be separated from God as well. Do our troubled hearts want God to search us, to examine us, and reveal the sin in our lives so that we can confess and be clean, cleansed? Are we seeking him with all our heart, or are we seeking other things first? Our Heavenly Father wants to have a relationship with us. He loves us so much that he made a way for this to happen. We need to remember the cross. We need to remember that he gave up his son Jesus for us, that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins with his death on the cross. Jesus has made it possible for us to have that relationship with God and to spend eternity with him. This was done through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and by faith as we trust in him. And this gift is not only for ourselves, but for those who David called the enemies, and we need to be willing to reach out to them with this message of salvation too. The intellect of humans and even computers are amazing, and they're an amazing thing, but they do have their limitations. Only God knows everything about you. He is with you everywhere. He has created you fearfully and wonderfully. He has made you into who you are today, and you are greatly loved. He has shown you his great love by giving you Jesus, by providing a way to have your sins forgiven, by providing a way to restoring a right relationship with him because you are loved and valued. Let's love him by living for him, by being obedient to his ways, hating sin, hating sin in the world and in our lives and seeking more of him. And with his mercy, we can go from a life that is self-seeking to one that is the life of true worship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can have confidence in the God that created us, that knows us and loves us, that you have your hand on us, on our lives, protecting us and guiding us every step we take, a God that loves us despite our faults and our failures, a God that so wants a relationship with us, so much that you are willing to pay the highest price possible, the life of your only son, Jesus. Lord, we don't want... Um, anything to stand in the way of this relationship, yet we fail you so many times. Or we confessed that so often we try to solve our own problems, we judge others when we think 
when we um, should be looking inward in ourselves. We speak out when at times we know we should remain silent. But Lord, you promise us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So we praise and thank you for forgiveness, for your mercy, for your love and grace, for restoring our hearts for everlasting life with you. And so we ask that you search us, Lord. Search us and know our hearts. Examine us so that if you find any sin in our hearts, any wrong thoughts or motives, that you would reveal them to us and help us change because we don't want anything to stand in the way of our relationship with you. So Lord, we thank you for loving us and for all your provisions. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.